Now, one of the things you hope for as a parent is that your kids will like the same things you do. Like take movies, for example. You really want them to like the same movies you do, otherwise it's going to be a, a, a rough 18-so years. Thankfully, it's panned out that way for us so far. Uh, the most recent film that they've taken, my kids have taken a liking to is the Lego movie, which means that there's been a lot of everything is awesome going on in our house. But one of the things I love about the sequel, Lego Movie Part 2, is that it gets doused in realism. Not that it's any less goofy, but by the end of the movie, the characters have realized that everything is not awesome. Everything is not cool, even if they want it to be. And I think that's kind of how our world is. We would like everything to be awesome. But then we are reminded of things like 810 million people will go to, to bed hungry tonight. Or natural disasters like Hurricane Ivan come in and destroy tens of billions of dollars worth of damage and displace thousands upon thousands of people. And we see those things and we are reminded that everything is not awesome. And I think this can be one of the great cases against Christianity. Uh, for the next three weeks, we are doing a, a mini-series we've titled Evidence Against Christianity. Uh, we're going to look at some of the commonly presented arguments against Christianity and how we can respond to them. And this week, we're looking at the very light topic of God and suffering. Now, this question or this objection comes in any number of shapes and sizes, but it typically sounds something like this. I want nothing to do with the God of the Bible who would allow so much suffering and pain. And so we're going to unpack this tonight uh, by looking at three things. I want us to look at the heart of the issue, uh, the answer to the issue, and the help with or for the issue. So the heart of the issue. Uh, this issue is typically presented as a philosophical problem, uh, a trilemma that we need to solve. It goes something like this. If God is unable to prevent evil, oh, then he may be all good, but he's not all powerful. Well, if God is not willing to prevent evil, then he may be all powerful, but he's not all good. If God is both all powerful and all good, why does evil and suffering exist? It's like a, um, a math problem that you need to somehow figure out how those three things fit together. It's a philosophical issue or problem. But it's not actually a philosophical issue. See, when most people ask a question like this, even Christians, it is not philosophical, it, was, it is personal. They're asking the question because suffering has touched their lives. Maybe they're being bullied at school, or they have watched a loved one go through an extended bout of sickness with seemingly no relief or cure in the horizon. Think about it for a second. When has suffering touched your life? That's when you are most likely to ask this question. And at the heart of, of these feelings of, of frustration is actually right thinking. Because you know that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, always present, all good, you would expect our world and our lives to look a lot different. And all, all I'm trying to say 
is that this question is not an argument to be won. We're not interested in the perfect answer because when you encounter this question in your life or in someone else's life, this is an issue that is born out of pain. They are suffering and they want to know why this is happening to them. So what's the answer? How do we respond? And here's the best answer I can come up with. I don't know what the answer is to why this happened, but I can tell you what the answer is not. Let me unpack that. I don't know why fill in the blank happened to you. Because the reality is we can quote things like Jeremiah 29.11, that God has a a plan for you, or Romans 8.28, all things work out for the good of those who love God. But that doesn't really answer the why question. All it does is kind of make God out to be this cosmic chess player who will sacrifice whatever pieces are necessary to win in the end. And so rather than trying to find the answer for why this specific thing happened, it makes way more sense to explain why it isn't happening. It's not because God is distant and uncaring. Suffering never occurs because God is not in the room. And here's how we know this. It's what our first text is about this evening in Isaiah 43. Notice what the Lord says to the nation of Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Though the rivers, uh, through the rivers, uh, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God promises that he will be with his people in the midst of their hardship and suffering. He's not off doing his own thing, unconcerned with you, with you and your pain. And here's how we know that's absolutely true. We look at Jesus. See, when we get to the cross, we see just how far God goes to be with us in our suffering. Maybe you have uh, lost a loved one and you think that no one can understand what that feels like. But when we look at the cross, we see the father losing his only son. Or, or, Or when you are suffering, when it hurts so bad that you just want to cry out in pain, why God, why? We look to the cross and what do we see Jesus exclaiming? Why, God? Why? Jesus has suffered everything you have and more. It's not a contest, but but we need to realize that, that what made the cross so horrific wasn't just the physical pain. That on the cross, Jesus was alienated from God. That he was cut off from the source of all that is good and loving. He experienced cosmic, absolute, utter, infinite suffering. And he did all of that for you. See, the, the suffering, the pain that we experience are, are the side effects of humanity's rebellion against God. And God hates that his creation is suffering. And he could have just wiped out the problem, but that would mean wiping out all of us. And so instead, 
Isaiah, in our second passage, tells us what God decided to do. He talks about this one who is despised and rejected by man, one who is acquainted with grief. He says, surely, in verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wombs we are healed. See, Jesus loves you that much and he hates suffering that much that he was willing to come and be plunged into our suffering and experience it so that someday he could end evil without ending you. Even though the, the cross doesn't tell us what the answer is, why this present suffering is happening. The cross does tell you what it isn't, what it can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love you. It cannot be that he doesn't care about you. And we can take great comfort in the fact that, that he, he that went through the deepest waters, who suffered the cosmic fire for you, will be with, will be with you in the midst of your personal fire. So what do we do when someone we know or, or, or we ourselves are left asking this question? We have to break it up in two. So if, someone, if someone's asking you this question, probably not a philosophical debate for you to win. They are probably asking out of, of hurt or grief or something like that on the spectrum. So the best response you can have is to say nothing to listen, and to be present with them. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 15, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. One of, one of the greatest responses that we can have when others are suffering is to sit with them in their suffering, to walk with them through the waters, to stand with them in the fire. Uh, th this is one of the greatest ways you and I can be a reflection of our God. Because rather than doling out platitudes from afar or patting them on the back and telling them that things will be better, we're able to sacrificially join them in their grief and suffering. Because that is what God has done for us. Okay, but what, what if it's you that's asking the question? because none of us are impervious to asking this question. What if it's you who knows all the right answers, but, but something comes into your life and it just knocks you over? What do you do? You lament, which is where you express your anger, your hurt, your disappointment, and your frustrations to God, which might seem counterintuitive. I'm allowed to be angry and frustrated with God? Yep. You absolutely are. And I know that because a lot of the Psalms are written that way. They're laments. But lamenting does not mean that you just rail at God. You roast him and use him as your verbal punching bag. As you read through lament Psalms, you'll see two things. You will see a detailed, almost vivid expression of the pain and hurt the individual is experiencing. They do not hold back. 
But in that, they will also profess God's faithfulness. They'll begin asking God in the midst of their pain to show up. See, when we lament, we express our angry disappointment to God, but we aren't demanding that God do something because of our frustration. Rather, we are asking God, we are waiting on God to reassure us of his love, goodness, and wisdom, that he is right there with us in the midst of it. Guys, here's the point. There is no simple answer to this question. And while the Bible has a lot of resources and reassurances, uh, there's no easy answer for why bad things happen. But you and I can be confident that it's not because God doesn't love or care for you. And so whenever you find yourself in the furnace, can I encourage you, look to the one who went there for you and is there with you.